You can pull out your sermon insert. It says, Summer Psalms, Learning the Songs of Jesus. We are um, spending the summer, we're taking a break from our Old Testament survey where we've just been studying the Old Testament story, as is often our practice in the summers to study the Psalms, which are indeed the songs of Jesus, the songs he and his followers would have sang and prayed and chanted. And so we are finding ourselves this morning in Psalm 45. Psalm 45. To serve as a little introduction, sorry, we're multitasking here. At the front of your worship booklet, which says Worship Gathering, June 6, 2022, I put a quote in there from James Hamilton. James Hamilton is a seminary professor I had in seminary. Uh, He goes by Jim, Jim Hamilton. He's a scholar of the Psalms. And it's really helpful on this. I just want to read you his quote, which will set the stage for us as we get into Psalm 45. Psalm 45, writes Jim Hamilton, anticipates a king whose coming will resolve the emotional and spiritual pain of individuals and the nation's faithful remnant. That was Psalms 42 through 44. Who will fulfill the blessing of Abraham by conquering the seed of the serpent and overcoming all who curse God and his people, thereby blessing all the families of the the earth and rolling back the words of judgment God spoke in response to sin. He will conquer the world and fill it with the aroma of his glorious humility and the joy of his reign. So that sounds like a lot because it is. And it's, uh, the paragraph is correct, and that is what Psalm 45 is going to show us. So we're going to cover all of human history, all of redemptive history, and we're going to do so by looking at a love song, which is Psalm 45. And so as is our custom here, if you wouldn't mind, let's stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 45. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety and then just make reference back to verses. So follow along as I read Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. 
The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My wife and I have been enjoying a show. Uh, not recently, actually. We've, we've finished it, but a while ago. We were watching a show. And one quote from it that you might know if you have also watched this show um, will stick out to you. And this is the quote that, that comes up throughout the show, and that is this. Terry loves love. Terry loves love. It's from the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a comedy on NBC. Um, it tells the story of the 99th precinct of police officers in New York City. It is in the, the, the realm, if you will, of the office, parks and recs. So if you like that type of humor, that would be right up your alley. Um, we laughed a lot. We would often watch an episode or two of Brooklyn Nine-Nine after watching something really heavy, a, a documentary or something that was really depressing. We're like, we got to help. We got to laugh. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, I have to say as a caveat, I do not endorse everything in that show and on and on. Okay, got that? But it was funny. Um, my favorite character is a big, strong man. In real life, his name is Terry Crews. You know Terry Crews? He's big, muscular, he's jacked. It's a little confusing because in the show, he plays a man named Terry. Terry Jeffords. Sergeant Terry Jeffords. He loves Greek yogurt. He's super strong, beats up the bad guys, but he's also a big softy. He often says, Terry loves love. Whether he's going to a wedding or young people are falling in love or whatever the case, he always is a big softy for love, for love stories. Terry loves love. What's interesting is I think Terry would love Psalm 45 because Psalm 45 is a love song, a love psalm. This is expressed most clearly in the opening verse, which is really verse zero, the superscription there that I included. To the choir master, according to the lilies, that is a word, lilies, that is used eight times in the Song of Solomon. It's a connection that the psalm is making to another wisdom literature collection, the Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, which is about love, marriage. A maskal of the sons of Korah, you may recall last week Roger mentioned a maskal, we're not exactly sure, some sort of musical term, but likely um, was an indication of a psalm of instruction, a teaching psalm. And then we're just told directly, a love song. So this is a psalm connected to the Song of Songs. It is a mascal meant to instruct and teach us as the readers and singers of this song. And it is clearly a love song. And it's a love song in, in multiple ways, which is interesting. You notice at the beginning, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. That is the writer of the psalm who is writing affectionately about the king. So it's a, a scribe, a, an artist, writing a love song to his king who is strong and victorious, has delivered them. But also inside the psalm, 
It's a love song of a king with his bride. Multiple layers of this, this love song. And so in your sermon insert there, I make, uh, it's in big red bold, if I had to make one argument, as we apply this psalm through Christ to us, we are to have this takeaway. That is, God's people ought to celebrate God's glory as we spread God's fame across God's earth. And you could take God there, if you wanted to be uh, more closely connected to Psalm 45, you could put the word king in there. King Jesus We, as the king's people, ought to celebrate the king's glory, his weightiness, his beauty, his worth. As we spread the king's fame, his value, his worth, his loveliness across the king's earth. We'll hopefully conclude with that if I get there in time. Um, But we have uh, three things I want to do for us this morning. Two of them are actually to set up Psalm 45. I want you to see first, I'm going to lay some groundwork briefly on the connection of Psalm 45 with nearby psalms. Secondly, we're going to actually discuss weddings, weddings of the ancient Near East, which is exactly what this is, and I will show you that that's what that is. And then thirdly, we'll actually zoom into the psalm, we'll just drop down on a couple places and make some application to us, because we too have a king. We too are to be writers of songs, if you will, that are affectionate about our king. We, too, are called a bride married to a king groom. So, first off, Psalm 45 is uniquely connected to the surrounding psalms. So, in case you haven't picked up on this yet, the layout of the the psalms, often called the Psalter, is highly intelligent and highly structured. It's intentionally put together in an order in the way that we have it today. Most basically we see this. I don't know if you knew this, but the 150 psalms are broken down further into five books. Did you know that? Book one is uh, Psalms 1 through 41. Really, it's Psalms 3 through 41 with Psalms 1 and 2 as an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. Book two is Psalms 42 through 72. You have your Bible, you can, you can check my math. When you get to Psalm 42, it just says book two. They are laid out that way. That's where we are all this summer. This summer we are in book two. Book three, Psalms 73 through 89, that's the dark book, the depressing book. It is lament after lament, some of them not being resolved, and it is dark. But it's also been a comforting book to those who are in darkness and struggling. It's likely been argued that that psalm, that, that, that tracing the the history of Israel, book three is describing Israel in exile. It's all the songs they were singing while in a foreign land having been conquered because of their unfaithfulness. Book four, Psalms 90 to 106, then begin to get brighter and lighter as the people are told to be coming out of exile. And then book five ends on the high note, 107 to 150, all psalms of praise and celebration and exaltation and excitement. So most basically, we see that there's at least a breakdown in that way. But even deeper, we see how highly intelligent the psalms are because one given psalm is often connected to the psalms before and after it. The way you would do this, if you were writing scripture, is you would use similar themes. You would build truth across psalms. You would use the similar or, or repeated phrases or words. Or 
connect the Psalms together through historical context. Not all the Psalms, we are told the history behind them and when they were written, but some are, and they are grouped together. So why am I telling you all this? Why am I going into why, how the, the Psalms are structured um, on purpose? Well, most commentators are arguing that Psalm 45 is especially linked to the Psalms around it, most specifically to the preceding Psalms. What is that still? That doesn't do anything for me. What are you talking about, Taylor? You may recall we began our summer in the Psalms at the beginning of book two with Psalms 42 and 43. They were individual laments. The writer of the songs, those two, was individually lamenting, crying out to the Lord in a state of spiritual depression, darkness, a season of desolation. We saw that repeated refrain, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? They were dark psalms. They were laments. Psalms 42 and 43. And then last week, Roger preached Psalm 44. We move into a lament, but it's now a a y'all lament. It's a corporate lament that the people of God together are crying out to God, lamenting. Saying, we're surrounded by enemies. Where are you, God? We're feeling that you've abandoned us, Lord. We were your people. You said you were our covenant God. Where are you? They're crying out. I will remind you of verse 9. You've rejected and disgraced us. Or verse 11. You've made us like sheep to be slaughtered. Where are you? We've seen some laments, individual, Psalms 42, 43, and then together the people lamenting Psalm 44. Why am I telling you this? Well, because now we've arrived at Psalm 44, oh, that's a lie, Psalm 45, where Psalm 45 is now beginning to offer, to hold out to us as individuals lamenting and as the people of God lamenting, a cure for the lament, which is what? We have a king. And then the Psalms continue in 46 and 47 to just compound this truth. What do we do? Well, we got to create space for us to lament individually. That is a legitimate place to be. Together, it is a legitimate place to be, to get together in groups and cry out together, where are you, God? We're struggling. But the Psalm moves right along the book of Psalms to then lift our heads. We have a king. A king who's conquered the enemies around us. We have a king who is for you, who is present. So what is the answer? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in the king. This is beginning to solve our spiritual darkness, our depression problem. But secondly, not only is Psalm 45 connected to the psalms around us, it's also a love song, as I mentioned. The psalm is celebrating an earthly king We have no idea who it is, although uh, some people are trying to argue that it's Solomon, maybe in his early days. We're just simply not sure which king is in mind. I have a theory that I'll conclude with. Um, But it's celebrating. It's a love song about this king and his strength, and also a song about his marriage to a wonderful, a beautiful bride. Now, the context and background to this is a wedding, but more like a wedding festival or feast. 
They weren't like our weddings today. What do I mean by that? Well, a wedding in the ancient Near East, a wedding in Israel lasted up to one or two weeks. Yes, you heard that right. If you've paid for a wedding, I see a couple of you recently paying for a wedding. One day was expensive, but we're talking about a week, two weeks long. And these weddings began with betrothal. Now, it's not exactly like our engagement today. It meant more. To be betrothed was a legal arrangement that included witnesses there to see it and oaths that the couples would take. It was an important and weighty matter such that if you were betrothed, you were already called husband and wife. You just had not come together yet in physical union. You were husband and wife living at your respective homes until the day of your wedding arrived. And when that wedding arrived, and I'm telling you this because I think this is exactly what's going on in Psalm 45. Wedding day arrives. The groom is at his house. The bride is on the other side of the city or wherever in her house. At the groom's house, his friends, his family, his entourage would be there with him. All right, today in traditional weddings, you know, like the groom's people sit on one side, the, the bride's on the other side sometimes, if you've been to a more traditional wedding. And this time, they weren't together yet. The groom and his people were hanging out at his house. The bride and her people were over here at her house. What was happening at the bride's house is in the psalm. She's getting herself all ready. She's putting on this, these robes interwoven with gold, many colored robes. Her virgin companions are following behind her. That's going to be important in a second. But she's getting all pretty. She's getting all together for this wedding. And at that time, the, the, the bride's people would have been speaking into her life. We still do this today. Usually on wedding day, uh, people speak into your life, pray over you, remind you of truth, give you wisdom that they have learned. Now back over here at the groom's house, what would happen when the wedding started is that the groom and all of his posse would walk through the city to get the, the bride from her house. It was a long procession of singing and praise. The groom at the front headed to get his bride, and they are walking through the streets, singing and celebrating and getting excited. They would arrive, this whole group, this whole party at the, the bride's house, and the groom would receive his bride. And then both entourages would combine as one huge party and walk back through the streets of the city, singing and praising even louder till they returned to the groom's house. In this case, the palace. And then they would party. They would celebrate and sing and eat and drink for one, sometimes two weeks, celebrating the marriage union of husband and wife. Side note, this is likely the context of Jesus' parable of the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins, you may recall. It's the context of a wedding feast and the five foolish virgins underestimated how long the wedding party would go and did not prepare accordingly. They're judged for that. Well, that's what's going on here. That is the the marriage. When you look at the psalm, so get your eyes on the 17 verses. We have this opening verse we'll conclude with verse 1 verses 2 through 8 include the king the king is at focus here he's celebrated for his might his conquest his victories then he's praised for his throne and his scepter 
And then in verse 9 through 15, we then go into and behind the doors of the bride's house as she is instructed and encouraged on wedding day before the groom comes. And then the psalm ends in verses 16 and 17, which return to talk to the king. All of those are masculine nouns and verbs, and we are being told in the concluding verse that I, the psalmist, will make your name, king, be remembered through all generations. Therefore, king, the nations will praise you forever and ever. So, what are we doing here? Well, let's drop down. Verses 2 through 5, first, celebrate the king, specifically in his conquest and his victory. You have a brief outline in your sermon insert. It's slightly different because I wrote that like two weeks ago. Um, I've been gone this past week at our denomination's general assembly, a denominational gathering of over 2,000 teaching and ruling elders uh, to talk business. So yes, you can imagine it was as exciting as as you think. Um, But it's changed a little bit, but the, the, the breakdown is still the same as I've meditated on this. A celebration of the king's conquest and his victory. You notice that he's handsome. He's got a sword. He's riding out victoriously. His arrows find the enemy's heart, and people are falling under him. The king is being portrayed as mighty, victorious. The bad guys are defeated. And remember the context. It's supposed to make the people, it's supposed to give them comfort. Because in the previous psalm, they're surrounded by enemies. In the previous psalms before that, 42 and 43, where are you, God? He's right here. He's the king who's won for us. The bad guys are gone. And all of this language is reminiscent of a different battle that is yet future even to us. The 19th chapter of Revelation where we have a king on a white horse robed in white and a sword coming out of his mouth and the enemies perishing when, she, when King Jesus returns. But it's, it's pointing to that same king, King Jesus, and his work on the cross. This psalm that is celebrating a mighty king who is victorious and he's about truth and meekness and righteousness It's pointing to a greater king and a greater victory. Jesus Christ. We think Christ is his last name sometimes. That's his title. Jesus Messiah. Jesus the king. And he is the greater king of whoever this 45 is talking about. And he's defeated two greater enemies. We might even call them cosmic enemies, bigger enemies. Who were the enemies that Jesus defeated in his death and resurrection? You. Your sin that separated you from him. Your rebellion that we stated in our statement of faith. He conquered your sin. And secondly, he conquered the devil. The enemy of God which led to the fall of our first parents, which we stated in our statement of faith from Westminster Confession. Both of these victories are actually clearly seen. uh, While I was away last week, I was meditating through 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, and I didn't put this in your insert, I apologize, has both of these. A greater king conquering two greater enemies, namely your sin and the enemy of God, the devil, in one paragraph. Listen to these words. Everyone who practices, I'm sorry, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Here you go, listen to this. 
you know that he appeared, that's talking the referent is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Why did Jesus come? Why did he appear, reveal himself to us in the incarnation? To take away your sin, brothers, sisters. To take away my sin. But two verses later, the same statement is made. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Which one was it? Which one is it? John, make up your mind. Did Jesus appear in order to take away my sins, or did Jesus appear as the Son of God to destroy the works of the devil? Yes. Jesus appeared, friends, to defeat tougher enemies, greater enemies than Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Assyria. No, Jesus defeated sin and death. He took the eternal punishment that our sins deserved. He died as our sin and wrath substitute. But more than that, additionally, I shouldn't say more than that, but additionally, in his death and resurrection, he defeated the dark forces of the enemy. Or to use the words of Paul, he disarmed the rulers, the powers, the authorities that be. So friends, we are living our Christian life, waiting for the king to come back, but we're living our Christian lives in an age in which the war has already been won. Jesus won. You've been purchased. Your sins, past, present, and future, have already been atoned for in the perfect Son of God. You're forgiven, free, and restored. That's not just a mantra we use. It's true. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And that king disarmed the ruler. We're living in an age that, yes, the enemy is still active, but he has no teeth. Why are you cast down, O oh, y'all soul, together? Jesus has conquered for us. We've been made his people. We're sons and daughters of God. Jesus is king. And he's not a king way over there that we have to travel hours on foot to get to, then schedule a time and walk into the palace and hopefully he'll see us. He is a king who's present. The New Testament scriptures make that abundantly clear. He is king who spoke the universe into existence. And he upholds every molecule around you right now actively by his power. But he's also the one that hears your every prayer. Answers every cry that you have. The Psalms later will tell us he captures, he, he holds our tears in a bottle. He sees you, he knows you, he's present. And that present one who is king is also really, really strong. Kids, Thanos, Darth Vader, Pharaoh, Hitler, they've got nothing on Jesus. So, why are we cast down? Why is there turmoil within us? Usually, I'm not, not every case, there are all kinds of stuff going on. There's medical things and backgrounds involved. But a lot of the time, it's because we are forgetting functionally that we have a king. And he's for us, and he's right here. The second part of the psalm not only goes on to talk about what we've looked at, verses 2 through 5, which is his 
conquest, his, his winning, his toughness. But now, verse 2, I'm sorry, part 2, which is verses 6 through 8, are talking about his throne. It's, it's certainly connected to what we've been talking about, but now the king is not out riding about conquering the bad guys and, and, and fighting for the people of God, but now the king is pictured on his throne. He's already won. He is sat down in the midst of the people of God, and he's ruling and reigning and making decisions based in righteousness. That's verses 6 through 8. His rule is one of righteousness or rightness, goodness. You notice in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That verse goes on in verses 6 and 7 and include like a poetic retelling of 2 Samuel 7. You may recall a few weeks back, Roger was in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which he argued um, correctly in my estimation. That's the single most important Old Testament passage to understand the rest of the Old Testament. It's a promise of God to his king David that you, David, your throne, your dominion will be an eternal one. Why? Because someone from you, David, will always be on the throne. There will always be a Davidic king. Well, where is he? I don't see any kings of David in a little sliver of land in the Middle East called Israel. No, 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 that's because Jesus comes on the scene. And the first line of Matthew is that that's the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the king. He is the one reigning and ruling. Jesus is on the throne. And Jesus is said to have a scepter. I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of experience with scepters. But it's a, a big staff-like thing that kings would have. So imagine yourself in, I don't know, Lord of the Rings type context. And there's a, a king and he's got a scepter. He's got a staff. And it, it was symbolic of his sovereignty, his power. And this scepter is all over the scriptures. It appears first in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 49 verse 10, where we're told that a king is going to come. He's going to rule with a scepter from the tribe of Judah. Anybody want to take a stab at where King Jesus is from? The tribe of Judah. This scepter is mentioned in Deuteronomy 17, which is that chapter on what it means to be a good king and what a bad king looks like. He's going to have a scepter, a sovereign rule of goodness and righteousness. And most interestingly, in my estimation, if you haven't been meditating through Numbers recently, Numbers 24, verse 17. Expecting a king to come who would rule with a scepter is said to crush his, the heads of his enemies. Sound familiar? A serpent crusher, King Jesus with a scepter of righteousness and goodness, sovereign over all things. And if I haven't convinced you enough already, the New Testament tells you that's who this is talking about. In an extended argument in the book of Hebrews... The author of Hebrews makes this, this long, exhaustive argument on why Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's the greater King Solomon. He's greater than angels. Jesus is better. And in chapter 1 of Hebrews, this verse is quoted. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. That the scepter of your kingdom, Jesus, is a scepter of uprightness. You love righteousness, you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you the oil of gladness. That is Jesus, friends. 
It wasn't actually about an Israelite king first and foremost. It was about the greater king, Jesus, who rules us, rules now, not just the Middle East, but the entire universe as king. And he's a king who's good, righteous, and for you. He's also a king that is a king, regardless of whether or not you believe it. Whether or not you're experiencing it. There's objective truths that are outside of you that are true whether or not we want to bend the knee or not. That encourages me whether or not it's your your co-workers around you. Silly Christians. Stupid. Whether it's your classmates at school talking about the foolishness of a Christian worldview. No, no, no. Jesus is king even if they're making fun of you for it. And they will meet him someday. Jesus is on the throne whether or not we are recognizing it. So what that means for us is that we're going to let Jesus be our king. Has Jesus so influenced and affected all of your life, all aspects of your soul so that whatever decision you have coming up it's a decision with the king in mind is he the king of your whole life or have you strategically walled off pieces of your life where you can have all of this Jesus but this this you can't be here you can't be king here I'll give you an hour on Sunday but you can't have Monday through Saturday see the king you can have my my sins that's good but you can't have my money. You can have my future. You can certainly give me eternity. I really like that. But you can't have my marriage. You can be king over, you know, giving me things, blessing me. That's a, that's a famous word. That you bless me, but you can't have my calendar. Mm-mm. My schedule. Is Jesus king over your work? Your worldview? the way you spend your time. My, my hope, friends, is that this psalm, as a love song, is simply a reminder that we are to love Jesus. It's like, whoa. We are to love Jesus. Jesus is to influence, impact, infect the way we think about all things and do all things. Is he king of your life? Third and finally in this psalm, I just want to mentioned that verses 9 through 15 talk about now the, this, this daughter, this bride who's being wed to the king. Oh man, we're running out of time. There's a, um, I always add like five minutes for second service. I don't even know how I did it. Verse 10. Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear. What? Forget your people and your father's house. Okay. This is odd to our, our, our ears, right? So there's two popular interpretations of this. It's just simply one, saying that you're going to get married to the king, and now the king and your life is one, is one, like your life needs to be about his life, and his life needs to be about your life now. Forget the other things. Or, a little harder for us to actually get our minds around, is that this could be a woman that is marrying the king who was from a conquered people. So that the arrows of the king that found the hearts of the bad guys might have found the heart of her dad and brother. 
again, with speculation which one it is. But yeah, I found it interesting that she is now wedding herself to the king and being told to be all about the king. To forget your people and your father's house. Again, it's made many scholars think that she's now become a Yahweh follower. As hard as it might have been to be conquered, but she's, she's to leave the old gods that she worshipped in her pagan lands and to worship the one true God. Whatever the case, I think there's a similar sequence for us. Because you're probably uh, well aware, the Bible says that we, together, are the bride of Christ. We are wed to a mighty king, a groom. That is, that we are in a covenant relationship that will last forever and one of affection and care where he looks out for us, protects us, and that will last into and through the eternities. And so I think we could appropriately, not in an irresponsible way, apply this way of thinking to us. We are a new family brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, and we too, as the bride of Christ, ought to hear the king, consider our new king, incline ourselves to him, and forget the rest. Forget your old life that you had apart from Christ. Forget your sin patterns and the other gods that you used to worship but before meeting the one true king. Be about the king bride oh, I gotta conclude. let's, let's uh, conclude with this verse 1 my heart the psalmist says overflows with a pleasing theme some translations you might have says a noble thing it's literally just the word good word my heart is overflowing with a good word. I can imagine the, the, the songwriter, if you've ever written songs or poetry or whatever, and you've done one, and it's good, you're like, oh, that's a good one. This is a good one. My heart is overflowing with a good word. Why? Because I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. What is that? Friends, this is a, a challenge for me and an encouragement because a scribe was proficient in the Bible. This is a professional Bible person, a studier of God's Word, a memorizer of Bible, a meditator on God's truths. In conclusion of this psalm, where we have seen a mighty king who conquered, we're reminded of our sin and the devil who was conquered by our King Jesus. Friends, I want to hold out to us that we are to be like scribes, memorizing, meditating on the scriptures, getting God's word deep into our souls. Why? Because Psalm 45 tells us it's in so doing that we see the king. So I want to hold out before us, let's be ready scribes because we have hearts that ought to be overflowing even more with an even greater pleasing theme. In Jesus. So here's my theory that I told you I'd conclude with. I'm not sure the psalmist actually had one particular face of a king in mind. Yeah, I can't prove this. But you can't prove it, Solomon, either, so I'm just going to go with it. 
I think because of this verse, the psalm writer, this artist, is so biblically informed that he's writing a love song for a king who he is seen in Genesis 3, Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 17, Numbers 24, 2 Samuel 7, and he is writing a love song for the perfect king who he actually has not even seen yet. And when Jesus steps into time, he says, I'm the one. I'm the king. And the psalmist has done this because he's a Bible studier, a scripture meditator. A scripture memorizer. And so his tongue is like the pen of a proficient scribe. Let's be Bible people, friends. I, I hope I'm preaching to the, the choir, but you recognize in our liturgy how much Bible we have. We are hoping that you are most days meeting with God in scripture memorizing it. That's why Roger mentioned last week, I've challenged the student ministries in, in the youth group to memorize Romans chapter 8. That's done wonders for my soul, having that chapter, yes it's long, but in my soul. Memorizing, meditating. So friends, there's so much more I could say. Maybe Revelation 19 is just seeing this bride, I'm sorry, the, this groom come back for us. But I just want to take us to the table. Something we do every week because we've just heard a sermon from a love song. We're now going to go as God's people, his bride, to a love table. A table where if you've been wrestling, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Or if you've been doubting or if you've been unsure God is, is here. Maybe he's distant like Psalm 44 was saying. Look no further than the love table. The table of the Lord where we're going to hear a sermon through our other senses, bread and wine, and take to ourselves our king, who by faith will energize us, strengthen us, help us love him like the psalm has encouraged, and remind us that he has died for your sin and died and rose again to conquer our enemies.